Hey, everybody. I have to say, I love how today's second episode of Crafting with Ursula with Molly Gloss, I love how so radically different it is than the first one with Becky Chambers. And yet, paradoxically, how they both demonstrate something similar about Le Guin. Let me try to explain. The 18 months after Ursula died, I was often approached to write something about her. For instance, the Poetry Foundation wanted an essay that explored her life as a poet in its own right, something that had received very little attention in this way, but also what her life as a poet revealed about her more generally speaking, and what did it reveal about her much more well-known canonical works. I was approached, I think, because our collaborative book together, Ursula K. Le Guin, Conversations on Writing, was the first book to come out after she passed, and one of the last to come out in her storied career. But at the same time, I was by no means a Le Guin expert in any way, nor am I now. But each of these times presented an opportunity, a challenge to think more deeply about what she meant and what she means to the world of literature and to the world itself. One of these essays I titled The Holographic Universe of Ursula K. Le Guin, and it later got renamed by LitHub to the more mundane title, Ursula K. Le Guin, Editing to the End. But because most of my conversations with Ursula were about the lesser-known aspects of her writing life, whether her work as a poet or a translator or as a literary critic or an essayist, or as someone thinking about grammar and syntax, I did have a special interest in what this so-called marginalia, what these practices at the margins of her public persona, did reveal about her most well-known self and how the two related to each other. So I was interested in the notion of holographic film, that if you take a holographic film, let's say of a chessboard, and you cut any piece off of it, of any size, from anywhere in the film, creating a smaller fragment of the whole, that when you shine a laser through it, it recreates the entire image whole. That the whole exists within all of these smaller pieces, in every piece, in every fragment. In my essay, I was thinking more about the quiet choices she made every day. What presses she chose to publish with, what radio stations she granted interviews to, especially given how she could have easily defaulted, like most people would, to the choices that would give her the largest exposure and the most bang for her buck in future sales. But instead, many of these quiet activities she did helped build and sustain whole systems, helped feed the literary ecosystem in Oregon, the political ecosystem, and the literal ecosystem itself. So when I look at these first two episodes, which at first seem like polar opposites, and in many ways indeed are polar opposites, the one with Becky Chambers, very macroscopic, how to create aliens and alien cultures, and today's episode with Molly Gloss, very microscopic and granular, how to write a clear, clean line. I also think about how the whole is recreated nevertheless in each. That in Becky's episode, we start large, and yet the more we talk, the more the choices in how to render an alien culture on the page come down to choices like point of view or the shape of one's story. And with today's episode with Molly Gloss, even though we start at the level of the sentence and at the level of the line, even though we start with adverbs and syntax, it inevitably opens up into questions of gender and feminism, questions of science and technology in imagined worlds. This, if anything, is the thing I've learned most about Le Guin through all of this, and these two conversations are a great example of it. 
Another great thing about today's conversation with Molly Gloss is that it is not only with a fellow science fiction fantasy writer, but a close friend of hers for 35 years. A relationship that started as one of teacher-student, then friends, and writing peers, where they were in peer writing groups in both prose and poetry together over the decades. Before we start, I do want to mention, particularly for new listeners to the show, that beyond this new series, there is a wealth of science fiction and fantasy conversations in the Between the Covers archives. From Ted Chang, to N.K. Jemison to Jeff Vandermeer, Kelly Link, and Nnedi Okorafor, you can foreground all of these by going to tinhouse.com slash podcasts and clicking on the filter SFF. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's episode, do consider joining the community of listener supporters of the show. There are a ton of potential rewards of doing so, from rare Le Guin collectibles to an incredible Le Guin tribute anthology of short stories called Dispatches from Anaris that includes stories by everyone from Fonda Lee to Lydia Yuknovich, including a story by today's guest, Molly Gloss, and a foreword by me. You can find out more about all of this at patreon.com slash between the covers. And now for the second episode of Crafting with Ursula on writing the clear, clean line with Molly Gloss. The connection between what I do as a writer, making worlds out of words, and what my wizards do using words to kind of remake the world and change the world and cast spells. And that magic in Earthsea is word magic. I mean, obviously, to me, words do make magic, in a sense. They make something new or different. But what I'm after, ultimately, is to make something beautiful. Just like a potter making a pot or a sculptor carving a statue. Art has to do with making something that is satisfying and beautiful. I see my job as as holding doors open or opening windows, but who comes in and out the doors? What you see out the window? How do I know? My responsibility is just to keep the mind open, not close it off. That's enough right there. Welcome to the second episode of Crafting with Ursula. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest writer, Molly Gloss, is known for her novels that explore the lived realities and the mythologies of the American West. Novels like The Jump Off Creek, a finalist for the Penn Faulkner Award, and winner of the Pacific Northwest Booksellers Award and the Oregon Book Award, and her most popular novel, Hearts of Horses, a finalist for the Oregon Book Award. Molly Gloss is also known for her science fiction and fantasy novels, novels like The Dazzle of Day, winner of the Penn Center West Fiction Prize, and her classic fantasy debut, Outside the Gates, that prompted Ursula Le Guin to declare it the best first novel she'd read in years. Molly Gloss's work occasionally mixes the real and the speculative, as in her short story collection, The Unforeseen, and her book, Wildlife, which is a work of both historical and fantastical fiction set at the fringe of the Northwest frontier in the early 1900s, a book described as a masterpiece by Kirkus in its starred review, and which won the James Tiptree Jr. Award, now called the Otherwise Award, an annual literary prize given to a work of science fiction or fantasy that expands or explores one's understanding of gender. Much of Gloss's work, whether Westerns or science fiction or fantasy, centers the stories of women, creates space for the lives of the non-human, and grapples with place and the stories we've inherited about it. She is the recipient of a Whiting Award, and a Literary Arts Charles Erskine Scott Wood Distinguished Writer Award, 
joining awardees from Ken Kesey to Barry Lopez to Ursula K. Le Guin herself, an award given to an Oregon author in recognition of an enduring, substantial literary career. Welcome to Crafting with Ursula, Molly Gloss. Thank you, David. That was a fabulous introduction. (laughs) Well, you and I have had a back and forth uh, over the last several months, but immediately one thing came to mind for you as a, a topic to focus on today, and that was writing what you call the clear, clean line. In, in your first email to me, you said, quote, Ursula will always be the model for me of how to write a clear, clean line, how to write beautifully but almost invisibly without drawing attention to yourself, without jumping up and down, demanding that readers notice your writerly hand on the page. So let's start here on the level of the sentence, on the level of what you call the, the clear, clean line. Tell, tell us what you mean by this, and by extension, how you see Ursula as a great example of it. I see in a lot of uh, novice writing in particular, but also in published novels, um, writers showing off um, to the point where, as I'm reading, I think about the writer and not about the story they're telling. They're using some strange word that I've never heard before or an elaborate uh, description that is maybe not necessary. Um, I don't know, it's hard for me to actually articulate what it is I'm talking about, except that when I see it, I know it. Um, It's a kind of a showing off of the writer. Um, And I never see Ursula doing that. What I see instead is uh, such beauty in her lines without that showing off so that it's almost just, it's flowing along in a way that, um, that creates an image in my mind and I get drawn into the story completely without thinking about the writer's hand moving the words around. Um, and I did pick out a little, a, a tiny little piece to read uh, of Ursula's from the Wiz- A Wizard of Earthsea Great. that I think demonstrates better than I can articulate um, what it is I mean by that. So just it's co- just a couple of short paragraphs. This is at the near the beginning of A Wizard of Earthsea when Ged is um, just about to um, to leave his hometown, his home village, and go off to this wizard school. The feasting was far from over and all the villagers were making merry with plenty to eat and beer to drink and a chanter from down the vale singing the deed of the dragon lords when the mage spoke in his quiet voice to Ged, lad, bid your people farewell and leave them feasting. Ged fetched what he had to carry which was the good bronze knife his father had forged him and a leather coat the tanner's widow had cut down to his size and an alder stick his aunt had becharmed for him. That was all he owned besides his shirt and breeches. He said farewell to them, all the people he knew in all the world and looked about once at the village that straggled and huddled there under the cliffs over the river springs. Then he set off with his new master through the steep slanting forests of the mountain isle, through the leaves and shadows of bright autumn. It's in that, in that passage, we don't, she slips right past Ged's actual farewell to his village, what he said to any of them, whom he embraced. Um, But we get the slightly formal syntax of, all the people he knew in the world, which is simple and concrete and direct. Mm. And it has a rhythm that evokes the language of high fantasy without, here we go, showing off. Um, As does the very simple word fetched. Mm. Um, And with just those few lines describing a few physical objects, we're able to imagine his whole life the bronze knife, the cut-down leather coat, the becharmed alder stick, his shirt and breeches, all that he owned. 
And then Gad looks around, but he just once, just once at the village and all the people he knew in all the world. And at that moment, we have this very poignant recognition of all that he's leaving behind. It's just a very short paragraph that carries so much weight and all without any showing off at all. When you mentioned this, this topic that you wanted to cover, um, something on the, on the level of the sentence, it made me think of something that Ursula and I talked about the first time she was on the show. It was an exercise that she used when she taught writing that she called the chastity exercise. And, and I don't know if this is related to your idea of a clear, clean line, but I'm just going to play that brief exchange and then see if you think this relates at all to, to um, the writing that you read. Well, as I say in the book, chastity is when I invented when I was, I think, of 14 and realized that my writing, my attempts to write stories, they, were, they weren't exactly flowery, but there were too many words. And a lot of the words were adjectives and adverbs ending in L-Y. So I, <laughs> I deliberately tried to write a whole page of narrative without any adjectives or adverbs at all. And it gets very tough because uh, it's words like only or then, uh, you know, are they, they're kind of adverbial. So sometimes you, you, you can't cut them all out, but you can certainly cut out all the L-Y words and all the lovely, rich, juicy adjectives. And you end up with a very chaste, plain piece of prose, which sometimes you think, oh, wow, you know. Because you have to put all that into the verbs and the nouns, it 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 gets actually stronger and richer. So it's it just is a and it is the exercise. I think I've used it in almost every workshop I ever talked, hmm. and people just hate it. <laughs> <laughs> but but it, they don't hate it as bad as they as they hate the, the last one, which is where you take a piece of your writing and cut it in half, uh, and that means to leave it. Saying the same things, but with half as many words. Right. And that one is like, Bleh. but it's very useful. <laughs> does does this feel like it's in the same realm of what you're suggesting around the clear, clean line? It does. Um, I've been looking at the paragraphs I read for you um, just to see. There's There are no L-Y words in those paragraphs. Mm. Um, and the number of of adjectives is is very they're very simple and and precise and only where they're needed the bronze knife um, the alder it, the alder stick is just a noun it's not even um, an adjective uh, but with the phrase afterward that she had be charmed for him rather than a be charmed alder stick mm-hmm. um, it's it's a really yeah there are very very few adjectives in it and no adverbs at all in that in those paragraphs. Um, however, I know that she has also said um, that this uh, modern um, rule that you keep hearing that you should never use an adverb she was very opposed to that and um, and as am I I think a very judiciously placed adverb can be very very important. Um, and useful. Yeah, I do too. The first time that Ursula and I talked, it was centered around the craft of writing on a granular level, like our focus. I I think part of why we hit it off is because she enjoyed talking about the nuts and bolts of grammar and syntax of sentence length and tense and point of view. But what was interesting about it is that even when we were talking about grammar or syntax or diagramming sentences, or perhaps even especially when we were talking about these things, the larger thematic issues that um, everybody is familiar with from her uh, most well-known works uh, of imaginative fiction, they, they come to play at the level of the sentence, um, whether that be gender or class or questions of how to imagine a future within language, um, within the sentence, um, a future that we want to live in, um, or we want to speak with. Um, and I wondered if you, if for you, this idea of writing beautifully but invisibly, if it is something beyond 
the aesthetic uh, beyond a personal poetics for Ursula. If, if you think it indicates something about her or her work in a larger sense as well, whether that's sociopolitically, ecologically, morally, cosmologically, do you, do you feel like there's something that we see in this choice that maybe reflects on the larger aspect of her in her work? I'm not sure how to relate that to the level of the sentence, but I do see Ursula as someone who, who begins with a person and a place, uh, a situation, and lets that situation guide her toward, toward the story. And so the, the meanings that arise out of that work, um, for instance, in Left Hand of Darkness, all about sexuality and gender and identity, um, arise from just the situation and the person, people. She's uh, placed in that situation. She didn't start out to write, I don't think, I'm pretty sure, right? She's not here for us to ask, but I'm pretty sure. She did not start out thinking, I want to write a novel um, that uh, explores and expands our understanding of, of gender. Maybe she did think that, but she didn't start out with that as the, the theme she was going to be writing about. She started out at the level of uh, person and situation. Mm. Um, and I do that as well. I try to do that. And that's how I have modeled my own writing after hers. I don't start uh, with theme at all or with a, a message that I want to convey. And I think that Ursula um, tried to steer clear of that too, although she certainly has written about her own struggles with, um, with getting on her high horse and declaring her opinions. Uh, and that shows up sometimes in her writing. But but she did struggle with it. She pushed back against it and for the most part was successful in, in not um, going there. Well, when you were reading that piece from the Wizard of Earthsea and, and you said afterwards, you can hear the rhythm of high fantasy and you can, the way you read, there, there's sort of an incantatory um, mm -hmm. hypnotic aspect to what you read. Um, and when we were talking about diagramming sentences and she was talking about the sentences having a cadence or a rhythm much like an animal a different animal would have a different gait um and a different sentence might have a different gait to it and, and then we had this sort of extended um, conversation about the importance of sound for her so the meaning not of the words but the meaning of the music that though the syntax of the words creates um, and i'm just going to play a, a couple sh other short clips. Here, here's the first one um, about that. Can can you talk a little bit about the importance of sound f for you and in relationship to storytelling? I, I hear I hear what I write. I started writing poetry when I I started writing real real young. You know, when I learned to write, I started writing, uh, and I've always heard it in my head. And I realized that uh, a lot of a lot of people who write about writing really don't seem to hear it. They don't listen to it. Um, and the, there's a kind of theoreticalness about the what they talk about the length of sentences and stuff. It's all more sort of intellectual. But if 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 it's if it's happening in in your body, if you're hearing what you write, you're going to. You're going to hear the right cadence of the sentence, which will help the sentence run clear. And what young writers always talk about, finding their voice. Well, you can't find your own voice unless you're listening for it. And the sound of your writing is maybe leading you into something that you... That, uh, I think most of our writing, our teaching of writing kind of ignores it. Hmm. Except maybe when people read poetry. And then they listen to the sound of it. But prose, they, they forget that, you know, there's prose that goes clung, clung, clung. There's an awful lot of it. I thought it was interesting that she said um, making the sentence run clear, which goes back to our uh, original topic. But you, you had mentioned in our correspondence that you were going to 
potentially read something from the dazzle of day uh, uh, that might demonstrate something about long sentences and long rhythms. I'm just going to play one more clip and then maybe we can hear some of your prose um, in relation, if you feel like it's in relationship to what I play. You, you have this wonderful quote from your talk at uh, literary arts and lectures in 2000. I'm just going to read it back beneath memory and experience beneath imagination and invention Beneath words, there are rhythms to which memory and imagination and words all move. The writer's job is to go down deep enough to feel that rhythm and let it move memory and imagination to find the words. And I think you were saying this in relationship to uh, Virginia Woolf. That is essentially something that I learned consciously from Virginia Woolf, who talks about it in similar terms. Her, Her phrase, the wave in the mind. And you've, you cite Virginia as, as a uh, perhaps the best example of the use of rhythm, I believe, in Steering the she, Craft. She's just an amazing example of the use of a, of a long and subtle rhythm in prose. Hmm. But there are many, many others. I, I, I did an essay about essentially the rhythm of Tolkien's writing in The Lord of the Rings. There are short rhythms and long rhythms, and they... There's a cyclical repetition in his work, which I think is part of why it totally enchants so many of us. We, we just caught we're caught in the rhythm and we're happy there. Does that spark anything for you? A couple of things. Um, I, I teach in an MFA program in the Pacific University low residency MFA program. And I find that what Ursula has said about uh, so many writers, so many student writers, um, not hearing their own words, I find that to be absolutely true, that um, a lot of my line edits for them are, um, are all about that, about the fact that they, they weren't hearing themselves. They weren't seeing that they were going kathunk, kathunk, kathunk. Um, the need for an extra word in this in this sentence for the purpose of rhythm. They don't hear the rhythm the way, and I do um, as Ursula did. Um, it just comes naturally to me to hear the rhythm in my words and to know, okay, this sentence is a little too long or this sentence is a little too short. It needs another word right here. Um, I can hear that, I can feel it. And I'll struggle until I get it right. And, or it may even be down to the level of a syllable that I need or don't need right there. Um, so that, first of all. But also, um, when I was a novice writer and I knew very few other people writing um, and first began to show my work to other people, um, I was often told that I wrote sentences that were too long. And Ursula said to me when I was her student, I love your long sentences. Um, So she gave me permission when it was, when the rhythm needed it to stretch out and uh, to really uh, enjoy a long, a long sentence. So I do have one I could read you from. Right. The Dazzled Day. Later in my life, when I flew in a balloon over Holt's loneliness, and saw for the first time the color of the deep ice along the edge of the glacier, I thought of that summer house, the light inside it, lying empty in the winter. And later, when I was standing in that boat in the Shablingo Fjord, watching the long curve of fire, the Migremo, falling over the edge of the sky and into the sea, I remembered the way the land looked when I was hanging from that balloon above Hold's loneliness, everything seeming to move in sweeping arches, the stones off the shore standing in long curving palisades and the breaking sea rolling slow and broad grayed with sand and the long grasses streaming under the wind and the falls along the edge of the fjord flying on the breath of air upward like smoke and the beads of rain falling so fine that it was still possible to see the sun and the violet sky but spreading the light in a great, brilliant, doubled rainbow, its shining feet seeming to rest on the oxbows of the mountains with the tongues of the glacier framed within it. 
That's why the people of the coast have that certain look behind their eyes, I was thinking then. That's why they don't want to live anywhere else. I, I think it's interesting that the only time that your cat uh, meowed was when you were reading <laughs> you were reading Ursula and then you're reading your own work. I wonder if the cat is picking up on that that sense of the I rhythm. Unlikely. I think the cat is just trying to What's your cat's name? problems in the background. There I have two cats and they're actually fighting and that's what that was about. Okay. I won't read too much <laughs> meaning into it. <laughs> um well you hold a unique perspective in relationship to the other guests coming on the show to discuss their writing their writing craft in relationship to their work and Ursula's work in that many of them have been deeply influenced by Ursula's work and some of them have met her or knew her, but you definitely, I think, have the deepest embodied in the world connection with Ursula and in many different ways. So early on in your own life as a writer in 1981, uh, you, you, you said you were a suburban housewife at the time who didn't know any other writers and only had two short stories to your name you took the only writing workshop you've ever taken in your life and Ursula was your teacher, but then you became friends and you were friends for 35 years. And during those 35 years of friendship, you were in several writing groups with Ursula as peers in both prose and poetry. In other words, not only were you having your work seen and critiqued by her and others, you were also seeing Ursula's work as well. So before I ask my next question, I wondered, um, and I'm guessing that, that the listeners probably are wondering too, if you have any stories that come to mind about your time in these peer groups uh, in particular, if, if you can tell us more about what it was like to um, receive Ursula's work in draft form and for her to critique your work in, in this context. You can imagine there's a sort of intimidation factor involved in critiquing anything of Ursula's. Um, but the fact of the matter is, especially in prose, there's almost no such thing as a draft when it comes to Ursula's work. What she bring, brought to our prose group was already uh, ready for publication. Um, so there was really very little for us to do in terms of critique. We would, I don't know, we might point out something that didn't land quite right to our ear or something like that, but, or, a, or we might bring up a question that we had about the work, but for the most part, um, there was not much to say except praise for her prose. I would not say that was true for poetry. In, in our poetry group, we often, always, um, give ourselves a prompt. Um, we take turns around the group, there are eight of us, we would get, each one would take a turn at giving a prompt for the for the coming meeting, and Ursula often struggled with that. She didn't uh, like the constriction of having having to write a well, not having to because we didn't force ourselves to to write to the prompt. But she often would not uh, write a poem that came from the prompt, and. And often any criticism that we had for her poetry, and, and we did bring up things we thought would work better in this poem or um, lines that didn't land quite right or breaking the lines in a different place. Um, often by at the end, when it was her turn to speak, she would say, well, thank you. <laughs> or, uh, or she might even say, well, I wrote the poem I wanted to write. Mm. Um, she was resistant. It was rare for her to, to say, oh, what a good idea. I think I'll change that. Uh, it, was, it would be rare for her to say that. Yeah. Um, yeah. When I hear you talking about her not receiving uh, the critique in the, in the given moment, it makes me think about our, our discussion about rhythm and cadence and long rhythms um, and the way you discussed Ged and the Wizard of Earth Sea, um, and the way she was able to sort of describe a life in with a certain economy, um, and because I think of my discussion with Becky Chambers, and we were talking about some of the critique that Left Hand of Darkness received, yeah, and how over the course of the next quarter century, 
at a different pace, not immediately, but at a different pace, she was listening and she was um, changing in relationship to community and relationship to feedback. And the ways she expanded that world seemed to be in relationship to that. That just made me wonder if perhaps in the, in the very moment of receiving the feedback is, is the wrong speed or the wrong rhythm from which she can metabolize it. When our group first began to meet, the poetry group, um, often the prompt we, any of us would give would be around a traditional form, a sonnet, um, for example. And, and Ursula resisted that. She had written, been writing sort of free verse for quite a long time and thought that's where she wanted to keep working and she resisted it. And then gradually she saw what the rest of us were doing. You know, we would come in with a, a sonnet or a pantoum and she would see that uh, we had done something interesting with that form. And she began, she kind of got into it. She started trying to write in forms and eventually she completely flipped and and was uh, beginning to write even her small little gems of poems, little quatrain poems would be rhyming poems. And, and when it was her turn to give uh, a prompt, it was very often around uh, creating your own form or um, a, a rhyming scheme that she liked to think of. Um, very often it was uh, a more formal and more traditional sort of prompt that she was giving because she had gotten really interested in it and what she could do with it. It was a big change for her. But that's typical of Ursula, isn't it? To, to sort of change her mind over time and, and demonstrate that for us. Well, you're talking about how she came slowly and then ultimately wholeheartedly to form because of your group's influence. Reminds me of her afterward to her poetry book late in the day where she talks about this very thing. So let me play the time that I bring up this afterward during our second conversation together, the poetry conversation, the time we talked about late in the day. Well, I really loved the afterward to late in the day entitled Form, Free Verse, Free Form, Some Thoughts, where you talk about the poetry group. But you also <laughs> talk about this realization you had from the poetry group assignments that form can give you a poem. And by that, you don't mean that just by following rules of some sort, you're going to get a poem, but you mean something else. Tell, tell us what you mean by, by the ways in which form provides a poem for you. Well, this, this is touching back on that same mystery of form, rhythm, and so on. This is something that I think is, is clear to many poets, but I was very slow to realize it. By committing yourself to a certain form, uh, let's say let's say a, a really complicated one like a villanelle, which seems very artificial and unbelievably difficult when you first approach it. Um, certain lines are going to have to repeat themselves at certain intervals, and there's no you don't fiddle with that. If you write a villanelle, by golly, you write a villanelle, you know, you don't write something like it and call it a villanelle. <laughs> so anyway. Take take the rules seriously, and somehow or other, as you follow them, you find that the necessity of having to do something gives you something to do. And uh, I don't know how that works, but it's and it doesn't always work. Mm -hmm. um, sonnet is probably the form most people think of when you talk about poetic form, and I find them terribly difficult. I write very very few anymore, um, maybe because there just are so very many good sonnets. Hmm. I don't know. That doesn't usually worry me. It's just not a form that's, that, I'm, that, works, that I work with very well. But quatrain now, which is a, uh, a strict form in a way, but the, the, the main, it's just four lines, that's it. There no, there's no other definition. But you can make it just as strict as you please with rhythm and rhyme and so on. I think any artist in any medium 
will tell you the same thing. That if you're working to a certain form that you have in mind, whether you originated it or it's uh, something you inherited from other artists, you have complete freedom there. It's it's in in a way I find uh, metric rhyming verse it gives me more freedom than free verse. Uh, it's a different kind of freedom. I'm particularly curious about the poetry peer group. Both of you write poetry, or both of you wrote poetry, and yet are both far more known for your prose. Um, But the first thing Ursula wrote was poetry. The first thing she submitted for publication were, were poems. And when she quit writing novels in the last 10 years of her life, Um, she continued to write poetry. So you could say it is the most constant through line through her writing life, Mm -hmm. herself as a poet. And I guess I wondered if you feel like the writing of poetry for her or for you has any relationship to this notion of writing the clear, clean line in prose. And if it does, um, how? Well, her poems were are almost always, not all, not always, but almost always, very small little gems. Um, they're not uh, lengthy epics at all, uh, or even full page poems. They're just a few lines often. She, she liked a quatrain and, and she might have a poem that was two stanzas of quatrains, but it would be rare for her to have a poem that was longer than that. And I don't know if that's to do with the clear, clean line. Maybe it is. I think it's just that she used poetry uh, as a way to think. Um, And you can see that, I think, in a lot of her poetry. Uh, She was a deep thinker, a philosophical thinker, and those things showed up in her poetry. Um, And even though I've said to you that she hardly ever wrote a full-page poem, I, I know of one that I think relates to writing and I wouldn't, I'd, I'd like to read that if I could. Great. Um, I happen to have a copy of it because it was, as far as I know, it's never been published. And, um, but I've kept Ursula's poems from our, from our group and I remember this one very well. And I think it relates to all our discussion about writing. It's called The Practice. You can get to the far land only by ship. So first you need to get to the seaport. If you live inland in the plains and valleys, you don't need to think yet about the far land, only about getting to the seaport. A long journey through the mountains, across big rivers coming to towns you never heard of. It could take a long time and a lot of money. And at the seaport, when you finally see the ocean, maybe you'll find you can't afford the passage on the ship that sails to the far land. But you can make a living in the seaport as a dockhand or cleaning rich people's houses. From the noisy docks or through the clean windows, you'll sometimes see that ships sail out crowded with pilgrims or returning only a few on board. Maybe you'll never save up the passage money since you got married and the kids came. But still, you'll live there beside the ocean that touches the shore of your land and the shore of the far land. Does it part or join them? Again, Ursula's not here for me to ask, so I'm, but I'm going to say that I think this is a poem that's speaking about the writing life. I think. Um, After all, it is called the practice, and Ursula had a habit of referring to practice in anything to do with writing or literary critique or reading. Um, She talked about uh, the point of all the practice, uh, learning grammar and syntax, um, is that you don't then have to be thinking about them consciously at all because they've become skills through practice. She talked about how it takes a long time to learn to how to use words, how to be a writer. It takes practice. It takes work, years of work. And so um, my reading of this poem is that it is about 
the arduousness of the writing life, a life devoted to the practice of writing. This is a poem um, that is saying something important for all of us to know that, that even if we never publish or we never make a living as a writer, if we spend our lives working on the docks or cleaning rich people's houses, whether or not we ever make it across the ocean to the far land, um, as long as we go on writing and sending out our work onto the sea of words, um, we, are, we are writers, we are living a writing life. Um, this poem, as far as I know, was never published. And I think it, if, if, I, if I didn't say it when she brought it to group, I would say now that I think it's a bit prosy. Um, I would say that there are a couple of phrases like a lot of money that feels to me too modern in a poem that otherwise seems to mostly fit with the storytelling voice of Earthsea. Um, and maybe those are the reasons why she, why she never published it. Um, but I think it's nevertheless a useful and, and interesting poem about the writing life. Well, given that you are reading a poem that is very much out of the ordinary for Le Guin, longer, more prosy, and you describe her more typical poetry, the published poetry, we are more likely to know as small little gems. L let's hear a couple of her quatrains. And I'll also include a brief preface by me about haikus because something about the essence of haikus, I think, speaks to the clear, clean line you are speaking about, too, in her prose. Well, I know you don't write haiku, but there was a lot. Uh, there were a lot of poems in Late in the Day that made me think about some of the maybe a shared sensibility with haiku, and it made me go to uh, the essential haiku by that was translated by Robert Haas. And I, mm -hmm. I wanted to go to the introduction to see if my instincts were were uh, true in this regard. And what he says about haiku is that haikus are attentive to time and space; they mm -hmm. are grounded in a season of the year. The language is kept plain with accurate original images drawn from common life. And there's a sense of the human place within the cyclical nature of the world. And I felt like that, while you're not writing in the haiku form, I, I felt like those that's, yeah, that's things it. could that really fits. characterize. I feel totally at home with that. The thing about haiku in English is, to me, the form doesn't work in English. And that's for me. I, I can't think syllabically. I think rhythmically, mm -hmm. and the the syllable count is, it just doesn't give form to me. Um, that's a that's a shortcoming in me, not in the form. But so my equivalent of the haiku is the quatrain, which is of course a very old English form, hmm. with mostly iambic or trochaic rhythm, but usually with a pretty strong rhythm and often with rhyme. Could you read us a couple of those? Oh, I was thinking yeah. in mind, uh, Harney County Catenaries and Artemisia Tridentata. Harney County Catenaries. Aloof and noble, the great buttes rear up their rimrock, let their slopes slide motionlessly down in the necessary curve from heaven. And Artemisia Tridentata. Some ruthlessness befits old age. Tender young herbs are generous and pliant. But in dry solitudes, the gray-leaved sage stands unforthcoming and defiant. You've been listening to Ursula K. Le Guin read from her new collection of poetry late in the day from PM Press. What role do you see poetry playing for you, in, in, in re if any, in relationship to your more well-known prose writing? I began to write poetry um, because I wasn't writing prose. Um, after my husband died, there were about three years there where I hardly wrote at all. And uh, poetry became a, a, a door opening up again where I could say, in poetry, things I hadn't been able to express or articulate uh, in, in prose. Um, 
So a lot of my early poetry for, for the first couple of years was all about loss and grief and loneliness and, you know, all those happy topics that inhabit a lot of poetry. Um, I have stuck with poetry partly because I love the women in our group. Um, I love them very much. And I love um, the process of talking about poetry. Uh, the critique is always interesting to me. Um, I love thinking about the poems, thinking hard about them. I do not consider myself a poet, really. I'm a, I still think I'm a novice poet, though I've probably been writing poetry now for almost 20 years, but, but I, I, don't, I don't believe that I have a, a poet's mind. Uh, other women in our group who are really poets, they seem to have their antenna out all the time for ideas for poetry. And I, I do not, I have to really struggle to come up with a topic for a poem. Um, that is not to say that I, that I don't think I've, I've written some good poems. I think I have, um, but I have no uh, strong need to share them with the world or to, I, I haven't submitted them. I don't try to publish. Um, I write them for my group, for my people and for myself. Yeah, that sounds nice. Um, the other thing you wanted to talk about is the way Ursula doesn't focus on gadgets in her science fiction. Uh, yeah. you, you said to me, quote, she would imagine one technological marvel, the Ansible, for instance, and then make all the rest familiar, an inhabited world of people and landscapes we recognize, but also imagining not only how the world is, but how it could be. Um, before we talk about this, do you, do you see this notion of writing the clear, clean line re related to this restraint or, or light touch when it comes to technology, when she's imagining the future? Um, is that, is that a, a macro, like a holographic macro version of her, um, restraint around, um, adjectives and adverbs, do you think? Hmm. I have no idea. <laughs> That's not a question uh, that ever would have occurred to me. Yeah. Um, well, talk to us about this this idea of introducing, uh, in an understated way, some sort of technological thing that doesn't exist in our world, but not really focusing on it. Well, in Ursula's work, of course, um, she was able to just uh, focus on science that is not the science of physics, chemistry, uh, but instead uh, the kind of sciences that, that are more human-based, uh, biology, uh, ecology, sociology, anthropology, of course. Um, I think that those were her entry points into science fiction, partly because of her, of course, her family history with uh, anthropology. But those were always of more interest to her, I think, the human sciences than the sort of hard sciences that uh, inhabit most of the early men's writing in science fiction. And it was, of course, uh, the fact that she was able to focus on those other sciences that opened up worlds for the rest of us, uh, women especially, but also, um, you know, all kinds of people of color and people of different gender identities and so on um, found in her work entry points. Um, she smoothed the way for the rest of us in some ways um, by that focus. Well, there, there are many ways I see connections between your work and hers, the, the way you both engage with place, both of you loving Eastern Oregon, uh, if not necessarily the same places in Eastern Oregon, um, the way you both subvert gendered narratives um, and the notion of a story and the way you subvert the notion of a story that centers the individual, often male hero. Um, but you mentioned this way that Ursula is understated with technology as an influence on your work, especially the, the dazzle of day. And I was hoping maybe you could just speak to that a little bit. Um, the ways in which you've just described Ursula's different focus on a different 
sort of science and a different sort of uh, emphasis or de-emphasis of technology and the way you carried that into one of your most known science fiction works? I don't believe I would have dared to try to write The Dazzle of Day if I didn't have Ursula as an example. Um, and here I think I was doing what I've seen her do, which is to introduce something, just one change, uh, one technological gadget. In this case, it's a a, a sail-powered, uh, multi-generational starship. Um, but then the people inside that ship are, as it turns out, um, Quaker people who are living a very uh, almost peasant life inside. Uh, inside the ship, they're growing corn and rice, and they have free-roaming chickens, and um, there are mature trees, and, and there's a rainy season. Um, and I, I wouldn't have dared to write that without Ursula's example. And also not, these are Quaker people who make consensual decisions. So there's no, it's not a Captain Kirk syndrome. There's no leader who's making choices for them. And that makes it very difficult for them as a group to come to any decisions when there's a crisis ahead. And that was really the driving force for me in writing the novel, but that means that the novel is very quiet. Not much happens in it because these people are just arguing about what to do next. Um, uh, <laughs> so um, uh, what, when, the, when the book came out, there were um, comments on, uh, on the Amazon website uh, from obviously young male readers who were saying, I don't know what all the fuss about is about this novel because nothing happens in it. Nothing is happening in it, mm. um, which is fairly close to true. Mm. <laughs> well, some of this makes me think of uh, something I talked about with uh, Becky Chambers, who's the first guest in this series. And she came on to talk about creating aliens and alien cultures. Um, but she was talking at one point about the left hand of darkness and her experience of first encountering it. And she said, there was science too, but it wasn't the science of physics or technology. It was the science of culture, the science of bodies. These sciences were every bit as worthy, the left hand said, and writing fictions of them was powerful business. And you've said in other places, in science fiction, just as in my reading about the West, it was women writers, Ursula Le Guin first and foremost, but also Vonda McIntyre, Cherry Wilder, Octavia Butler, Kate Wilhelm, Marge Piercy, who showed me a different world. Theirs were stories focused not on what a technological object could do, but on how the world is or how it could be. The science in their science fiction could be anthropology, psychology, sociology, the human sciences, quote-unquote, archaeology of the mind, to use Jane Yolen's phrase, and biology, botany, the sciences of animals, and all living things, the very sea itself and the earth. And I, I love that notion of archaeology of the mind. Um, you know, of course, that makes me think of Ursula's father, but also I think it's interesting that you point to this group of women writers and that they're engaged with the so-called soft sciences, um, which, you know, that's probably a dubious phrase to this distinction between hard and soft sciences and a gendered one. Um, but perhaps I wonder if part of this enterprise is, is defending and redeeming these quote-unquote soft sciences within science fiction um, much the way she was, Ursula was pivotal at defending science fiction itself when it was looked down as a, as a denigrated genre. Well, I don't think any of us uh, have, have written soft science fiction as a, as a way to fight back against hard science fiction. At least I, I wasn't uh, thinking in those terms. It was just that, um, those softer sciences, and again, I agree with you, that's a problematic term, but it, it, I, I prefer human sciences, um, that, that that gave me a place where I could 
feel comfortable because I'm, I'm not a hard scientist. I, I'm not, I tr have tried to read physics texts and I can't get there. My brain just won't go there. So for me, it was simply that it opened an opportunity for me to write a science fiction where I could feel comfortable, where I, where I could explore, for example, in the dazzle of day, I was, I was interested in exploring different ways to be married, different ways to raise children, different uh, political decision-making, this whole question of Quaker consensual decisions versus a captain telling you what to do, um, social arrangements, community uh, arrangements, that sort of thing were what interested me and what I wanted to explore, different ways of being, uh, but that were not uh, centered around a hard science. Well, you, you also mentioned wanting to touch upon um, Ursula's influence on the greater literary community. Just by, I think, by her choice to continue writing in, in a denigrated genre as she did um, to, to defend it, as you mentioned earlier. Um, her choice, because she was such an icon uh, and, and admired by literary writers, so-called literary writers, um, but choosing to continue to write in, in this denigrated genre, she made it possible for what we're seeing now in the literary community, writers like Jonathan Leatham and Michael Chabon and Karen Joy Fowler and Salman Rushdie and David Mitchell and Colson Whitehead and, and Ishiguro. I mean, these writers are all um, able to bring strangeness into their writing that, and I don't, I really don't think it would have been possible without Ursula first showing the way, mm -hmm. showing that it was possible to be both literary and uh, strange. Mm -hmm. um, and then similarly, her choice to vary from the very beginning to include non-white characters, uh, old age, old women, for example, um, people of unconventional genders and sexual orientation. She, by including those characters, she made a space for every, um, every black and brown and white and female and queer young writer to, um, to get into science fiction. Mm -hmm. And by, by her own novels using those characters, she demonstrated to the publishing industry, it seems to me, that books with such characters could still sell. And I think she made it possible for what we're seeing now in these young writers. N.K. Jemison and Nalo Hopkinson, Daniel Jose Older. Um, these writers owe, a, owe to Ursula uh, opening up a path, it seems to me. Can we hear a little bit about what you're working on now or what we can expect from you next? Um, I have written my last novel. I, I'm not writing any more novels. The Falling from Horses was the last novel I will ever write. Um, I. Uh, have a short story that's been sitting in a file for, I don't know now, a couple of years. And I keep thinking I will get back to it. And I open up the file and read it. And I think, gee, that's pretty good. I should keep working on that. And then I close <laughs> the file and I look at it in another few months. Um, I don't know what's happening there. If that's a pandemic lethargy or what that is, but, um, but writing, I, my writing life is around the poetry. I'm still writing poems with my group. And also in uh, working with students in the Pacific program, so that I'm uh, often uh, thinking about their work and writing about their work, and also uh, coming up with craft talks for the residencies and things like that. Um, that's the center of my writing life right now. So you're not going to see too much uh, with the byline of Molly Gloss coming out in the world anytime soon. We can Sorry. still hope. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there is that little short story sitting there. I, uh, it, it'll, it'll get around to being written one of these days, I think. I hope so. Thank you for being on the show today, Molly. Thank you, David. Good conversation. We are talking today to the writer Molly Gloss. You've been listening to Crafting with Ursula. I'm David Naiman, your host.
Today's program was recorded at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. More of Molly Gloss's work can be found at mollygloss.com. If you enjoyed today's conversation, consider transforming yourself from a listener to a listener supporter. Learn about the potential gifts and rewards of doing so at patreon.com slash between the covers. These include everything from rare collectibles from Ursula K. Le Guin herself to bonus audio beyond the main conversations with everyone from Ted Chang to N.K. Jemison, to becoming an early reader for Tin House, receiving 12 books over the course of a year, months before they're available to the general public. Again, you can find out more at patreon.com slash between the covers. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com slash support. I'd like to thank Arwen Curry for the audio of Ursula from the documentary Worlds of Ursula K. Le Guin, William Anthony for the photograph of Ursula used in the banner, Tin House's Jacob Valla for the graphic design, Becky Kramer for publicity, and Theo Downs Le Guin for being a bottomless well of ideas and insights. Finally, the music you hear, called River Song, and the music in the introduction, Heron Song, come from the collaborative album by Todd Barton and Ursula Le Guin called Music and Poetry of the Keshe. Thanks to Todd Barton for granting permission for its use. See you next month for another episode of Crafting with Ursula. <laughs>